Turn with me in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to the book of Colossians, um, as we do kick off this series called Preeminent. And thank you, Justin, for reading the scripture for us. We're just kicking off the very first two introductory verses this week. Um, And you want to follow along with me, that's on page 983 in your pew Bibles. That's 983. Uh, If you have one of the uh, large print Bibles, the numbering might slightly be different. But Colossians is uh, about four chapters. It's in the New Testament. It's It's a letter. Um, written by the Apostle Paul when he was in prison in Rome, and he is writing this to the church at Colossae. Uh, Colossae is in what is now modern-day Turkey, and he is writing to encourage them. And we're going to be breaking down and finding out what this letter means, because sometimes we think of the Scripture far removed from our everyday lives. But we're going to see that these people were a lot like us, that they struggled with many of the things that we struggle with. Not everybody had halos on and that big white light above them and walked around and said, thee and thou, but they had problems. They, they lived life just like we do. Um, and, and Paul is writing to them, and he's writing to them about correcting some errors about who they thought Jesus is. And I think that many of us have wrong thinking, or we, we have wrong thoughts about the person of Christ. We have a tendency to, to have this kind of nebulous image in our mind when we think of Jesus. Some people have this effeminate Jesus in their mind who's weak, and, uh, or we have this kind of racially strange Jesus where he's got really bright white skin and blonde hair and blue eyes. That's the Norwegian Aryan Jesus. And not this, this Jewish Jesus who was a carpenter, who, who looked like everybody else. There was no form or majesty that we'd think of him. He was a normal guy. And he came to live among us. But we fail to understand that he is the incarnate God. That he is the God who assumed flesh. He is the King of kings who comes in and lives among us. It reminds me of the story about Prince William several years ago decided to do um, an experiment. He decided to live as a homeless man in the streets of Great Britain. I mean, can you, can you imagine that for a moment? He's, you have the, the, one of the princes in Great Britain. Just, you're sit, you could be sitting on a, on a step with him. That's the prince. That's the, you know, he could be king. There's the, quite possibly be king one day. And, and to think of that that he humbled himself and that he's living with you. It's, a great, it's an amazing picture to realize this guy has the power that could be his in just a moment. Would that cause you to treat him differently? I think it would cause me to treat him differently. And I, I think about him, how he humbled himself, and I'm reminded what Christ did, that he humbled himself, and he was the, the, the Prince of Peace. This king of kings that comes in, assumes the flesh of man, and he gives himself to us. And we, we have a tendency during this Christmas season to emphasize his deity on the forsake of his humanity. Or you know how God could assume flesh, and we go the opposite for Easter. And we have to stop and, and get our bearings and say, who is Christ? What does he mean to us? And what do we give unto him? Once we correct these thoughts, we have to think, what do we give back? to this all-powerful, almighty God. I'm reminded of a book that I read several years ago. It's a devotional book written by a Scottish uh, Bible teacher by the name of Oswald Chambers. He wrote a book called My Utmost for His Highest. And I, I got this book early on in my Christian walk, and on the cover of this book, it had these hands raised in worship. And it was, it was a picture of giving to God what is already his, that I want to give to God my very best. And I have a question for each one of us. Do we give to God our very best? 
Do we give to God our very best or do we give him scraps? What do we give unto the Lord? Because it, it's representative of our heart. And I, what Paul is doing is he's challenging these Colossians who are confused about many things to give their utmost for his highest. And he's trying to show that he is the highest. That he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. There is no one greater than him. There's no being, no thought, no conception. You know, I was... Uh, Keeping up just a few weeks ago with the whole, the, the, I can't remember what it was, but we sent like a probe or ship that to land on a meteor. Did you guys see that in the news? That was phenomenal to think about. This, this meteor was like two miles long, and we're, we're catch, we, we hit it, and we're riding along on it, and, and they're talking about just pictures that are coming back from it. And not only that, but they're talking about the probe that we sent to Mars and the pictures. And I was even, that made me want to read a little bit more about the Hubble telescope and the images that are coming in from space and all of these different stars and different galaxies. And then we start talking about our, our sun and how our sun is actually a very small star and the rest of the galaxies. And there's galaxies that we can't even begin to comprehend or fathom that are so much more infinite than ours. When I think about all of these different galaxies throughout the universe, and then I'm reminded, according to the passages that we're reading, that God is bigger than all of those things. That he is, they are all contained in the palm of his hand. And I think about how mighty and how powerful he is, that I want to give him my utmost, the very best of my life. Are you giving your very best? To him. As we jump into this passage, we need to, and, and to get a picture, an inkling of what God is saying. And for us to grasp what God is saying in Colossians is going to require us to really examine this book, understand who it was written to, how it applies to us, and how it will affect our everyday lives. But before we go any further, let's pause for a moment. Asking God to, to convict our hearts that we might give Him our very utmost for His highest. Let's pray. Father, we come into Your presence right now. And we confess that our image of You is usually just slightly above ourselves. We fail to grasp that we are, we are small ants. That You are so big and beyond us, and yet we think of ourselves bigger or better than you. Lord, please correct our, any misunderstandings that we have about who you are. Change our thoughts. Help us to see what this letter means to us in our time. Lord, we know how you spoke to these people, and yet, Lord, you're speaking to us in our era. Lord, I pray that we might each ask ourselves that question. Are we giving our utmost for you, the highest, the most high God? And Lord, where we are falling short, convict us and help us to see and seek your lordship in all of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's jump right in to this text. And you can follow along with me in your notes if you have them. First of all, for us to really grasp what God is saying in this letter will require us to examine, first of all, the community around Colossae. 
the community around Colossae. We need to understand who these people were, what was going on in their, their lives. And we can see, if we do a little study, that it had been a place of economic prosperity. This city was located in a, uh, the Lycus Valley, and there were other churches that were in the, the vicinity, about 12 miles away. Uh, churches, Heriopolis was there, a church in Heriopolis, a church in Laodicea, which gets famous in the book of Revelation. Uh, and then you have these, the church at Colossae. Now, Colossae at one time had been a very a great economic center, but the other um, towns in the area had kind of passed them. In some ways, it reminds me of Aurora. And we see Aurora and Naperville, and I'm not going to start that war, but um, you have Naperville kind of becoming this fast-growing, uh, hugely growing city, and, and Aurora's kind of just been sitting on the sidelines. Now, Aurora's growing as well, but you see that there's been more of prestige and uh, going into Naperville than you have in uh, Aurora. And I see that a little bit with what's going on in Colossae, is that Colossae had once been the booming city. Everybody had gone there. It was really popular, but it began to shift. And their, their, their main trade was uh, wool. And they would, they would dye wool, and they would help uh, provide and make, these, make wool. But there had been a shift, and it, the, it had lost its great significance as this place of economic prosperity. But it had been uh, a place of great economic prosperity. It also had been in close proximity to other significant cities, just as I mentioned before, Heriopolis and Laodicea. And these became uh, much more of a greater place um, in cities that had a lot more acclaim. Um, and this town had grown big, and the business had been booming, and, um, but now people are going to these other cities. And it was much the, this city was much older than the other cities that were around. We can also see that it was a place of ethnic and religious diversity. Of ethnic and religious diversity. According to ancient historians such as Philo, Cicero, and Josephus, the area boasted a significant Jewish population, albeit it was a minority. And Antiochus the Great had resettled 2,000 Jewish families there during the late 3rd century BC. Now we're into obviously the 1st century, so there had been about 200 years passed by, maybe a little more than that, and this Jewish population had swelled. We don't have any concrete numbers, but it's an estimate between 10,000 to 14,000 Jews in the area. And we see that they had uh, a Jewish population there, and you have to remember that when Christianity started off, it didn't start off as its own thing, per se. People saw it as a, uh, an outgrowth or a, um, uh, of Judaism. It was called the way. And so people still saw it as connected with Judaism. So these new believers in Christ are encountering these Jews. And the Jews are like, hey, that's great that you're following Jesus, but... And they try to, to, to correct their misunderstanding of thing when the reality was is they've been freed from the Jewish law. And these guys are trying to get them back into the Jewish law to be, quote-unquote, good Jews. So this this church of uh, ethnic and religious diversity. So we looked at the city. Now let's look at the church in Colossae. See, Paul had planted several different churches, but the honor of planting this church didn't go to him. The church in Colossae was founded by a faithful emissary. Uh, it was founded by a guy named Epaphras. And when Paul was in his ministry in Ephesus, which was also in Turkey, Paul had sent Epaphras to spread the gospel in this Lycus Valley. 
And during his ministry, uh, almost, oh, excuse me, almost everything we know about Epaphras comes from a Colossians and its sister book, Philemon. Now, Philemon and Colossians have a huge closeness um, uh, together because of certain figures in the book of Colossians and in Colossae. And from these two books, we learn a few things. We can see that Epaphras was from this city and he planted this church. He was a faithful pastor. He was a man of deep prayer. And he had uh, been in prison with Paul, according to Philemon chapter 1, verse 23. And he'd visited Paul when he was in prison in Rome, soliciting advice from him and reporting to him everything going on in the church there. Now, Paul, along with Timothy, is the author of this epistle. Now, perhaps Paul was dictating to Timothy uh, to write this down, and uh, Timothy is helping write this with Paul. Uh, We're not exactly sure how they are both authors of it. That could be it. But we learn he is writing to encourage this fledgling church, and he encourages them for being faithful in the midst of difficulty. Faithful in the midst of difficulty. And look at verse 2. He says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. He could have just said saints, but he says faithful brothers. Why speak about being a faithful brother if there wasn't some reason uh, to be unfaithful? See, being a follower of Jesus is one of the hardest things to do. And as Christ followers, we are strangers in this world. It's not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be extremely difficult, so difficult that many will fall away because of it. Jesus related various responses to the gospel in Matthew chapter 13. So take a moment and turn to Matthew chapter 13 with me. And and the reason I share this with you is because I think we think that it's different time. They didn't live during our time. We see that they had pressure. They had pressure from family members. They had pressure from co-workers. They had arguments. They had disagreements as they tried to share the gospel. They had people giving lame excuses on why they weren't following Jesus. They had people coming up with all of these different reasons. And yet, in the midst of that, they remain faithful to the Lord. And we have to understand that as we share the gospel, as we live it out with different people, that not everybody's going to respond the same way way. That there are going to be people that hear the gospel and respond in love and belief, but there's many others that are going to give several different excuses and fall away. This is on page 818 in your pew Bible if you have them, and Jesus is explaining the different responses to the gospel. He says this, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another case sixteen, in another case thirty. So we break this down. If we were to break this down, we see when when Jesus says, when anyone hears the word in verse 19 um, of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and takes it away, what was sown in his heart. In other words, the devil takes what he understood and, and, and just removes it from them. 
So they don't get it. They, they, it doesn't find root on their heart. And he said, as for what was sown in verse 20, on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. I find a lot of people in this category. And, and Paul is writing to the church at Colossae saying that you have stayed fast. You have endured and you have fought and you have remained faithful even when you have been persecuted for your adherence to the word of God. I mean, how many of us can we, we can say that? We're good when everyone around us is a Christ follower. But when we're at the workplace, when every, we're the only one, when someone calls us bigoted or um, unintelligent or backward, do we remain faithful? Do we remain steadfast? Are we tempted to compromise with the culture in order to find acceptance? We hate conflict, but yet here, they probably didn't like it either, but yet they remained steadfast because of Christ. Now, this group, though, was also fruitful in the face of adversity. Fruitful in the face of adversity. Look at verse 5, going back to Colossians chapter 1. Of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world that is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. See, the church was growing. We would assume that they were growing numerically as well as in ministering to others. And even in the midst of difficulty, they were continuing to faithfully ministry, minister to others, and God was blessing their ministry. See, we have difficulties in our time as well. Adversity may not be as overt as in other countries, but it is increasing around us. Now, we also see that they were, they were fruitful, but they were also facing a divisive philosophy. And what I'm doing, by the way, is I'm giving you a big overview of Colossians. And in the next several weeks, we're going to be breaking piece by piece. Right now, I just want to give you a general overview. They were facing a divisive philosophy. If we were to go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See, they were encountering all different kinds of religious thoughts. And we are assaulted in our day all the time with thoughts that are, that are antithetical to the message of Christ. It could be in our schools. It could be in our culture. We have people selling it to us on television. It's all over the internet. Our peers are doing it. These are thoughts and philosophies that are set up to bring about and cause us to think different thoughts than what the Scripture wants us to think, what God wants us to think. And these are thoughts that we entertain that help control how we live our lives. See, we have to become individuals who think Think critically. And here, these individuals were encountering in, um, people whose thoughts and philosophies differed from Christ. And he says, see to it that no one takes you captive, that you're not deceived by this divisive philosophy that is to bring you down. And we have to examine that. We don't know exactly what it was. Some people believe it was an ancient heresy called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, and you spell that with G-N-O-S, that's like gnosis, uh, that's how it begins, G-N-O-S-I-S, like gnosis, and Gnosticism is this understanding that the flesh was evil and the spirit was good, 
And these were early critics and heresies that came in to uh, basically assault the early church. Some people think it was Gnosticism they were facing. Some think it was old pagan beliefs from the other people surrounding them. Others think it was a form of Judaism um, that had called them to follow the law rather than the, the true message of Christ. And it caused division among them. Now today, we have this thought in our own time. We entertain thoughts all the time that can divide us and divide our devotion to Christ. And we have these thoughts that we entertain. And, and these thoughts can come in a myriad of ways. For example, that we have these thoughts in our mind that think, I can just be right with God by having the fire insurance policy, receive Christ, and then he doesn't have my life. That's a divisive philosophy because it's not according to the word of God. Or if I do all these good deeds, I will, upset, or I will offset my bad deeds and I will be okay with God. That's a divisive philosophy. That's not a scriptural thought. We have these thoughts. Or, or Here's another one. God helps those who help themselves. These are all thoughts and philosophies that we entertain in our mind that are antithetical to the word of God. Or we think God wouldn't judge me for that. God, wouldn't want, God wants me to be happy. I hear that a lot. And so we use that as an excuse to stay in our sin. And that's not according to the Word of God. God wants you to be happy, but he more, more for him, happiness means holiness. So you're being holy, that will help lead to happiness. And it's not just happiness, it's joy. There's a difference there. And so he's saying to them, and he's encouraging them to strike down any of these divisive philosophies and thoughts and adhere to the Word of God. Now, we can get a better grasp of the groups that Paul was different, the different philosophies, once we examine the circumstances Paul was confronting. The circumstances that Paul was confronting. And like with any historical figure, we need, in order to understand them, we need to understand the circumstances around them. Martin Luther doesn't make a lot of sense until we understand the abuses that were going on uh, through the Pope and the different councils um, in the 1500s. Martin Luther King Jr.'s message doesn't make a lot of sense until we understand segregation and what was going on in the, the 1950s and the early 1960s in the U.S. Now we see that the Colossians were confused about the sufficiency of Christ. They were confused about the sufficiency of Christ, meaning that Christ was sufficient enough for salvation. We see then in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 through 23, that there were two major um, uh, confusions that were going on. There were those who wanted to um, put additives to what Christ had already accomplished, meaning that they're saying, Jesus is great, but you need to do this. We, I mean, you need to observe this holy day. You need to be circumcised. You need to have this done in your life. Not understanding what had been an accomplished fact in Christ. They wanted to add to it. We see that a lot, especially today if you encounter people that come from different sects of Christianity or even cults. Um, you see this with Mormons especially. Mormons will say, it's great that you're following Jesus, but you need to read and follow the Book of Mormon. Or you see this with certain charismatic sects, with uh, especially the United Pentecostal Church. They're known as Jesus only. They'll say, it's great you're following Jesus, but you weren't baptized in Jesus' name, and you didn't speak in tongues, so you're really not saved. 
So they add that. See, they're putting additives to what Christ had already accomplished. So there's that danger of this addition to the sufficiency of Christ. You must do this. You must do that rather than trusting uh, Christ entirely for salvation, knowing that it's already been settled on the cross. But see, then there's the opposite danger. Here you want to add to, and then on the other side of it is to take away from. And these are people that want to cut away everything else from the Scripture and just focus on the decision for Jesus. Meaning that I prayed the prayer, I'm all good, I don't need anything else, I got the fire insurance policy with God, and I don't need anything more. See, that's a decision without discipleship. See, when you have a decision without discipleship, you really don't have salvation. Because the two go hand in hand. We can't separate that no more than we can really separate a a, a coin It has to be together. The two are together. So you can't separate decision from discipleship no more than you can put an additive onto what has already been accomplished for Christ. And they were facing both dangers. And we see that in our time as well. We see people say, just pray the prayer, you're good. Or mouth the words, you're saved. Or or just be baptized and you're all good. And I'm, I'm blown away at this. And people have this confusing understanding People will come to me and they're like, well, I was baptized when I was 12. I'm all good. And there's no fruit of Christ in their life. That's that's a wrong understanding. If we shared before, baptism is not the finish line. It's the starting line with God. You see that time and time again in the New Testament. When people come to saving faith in Christ, they show that they have faith in Christ. They're in the race. This is the beginning of their Christian journey. And for whatever reason, we have put it so far back that it's this super Christianity. And then we say that we can follow Jesus, and then um, we don't need to be baptized. That's not adding to salvation, but it's showing the reality of our salvation. That we are participating with him. We are identifying publicly with him. And it's, it's the starting line. In matter, matter of fact, in the New Testament, you see faith and baptism almost immediately with one another. And we separated it. So we focus on the decision, but we don't have a discipleship. Or we have, we have the opposite side, where we have what has been accomplished, with added, and it, we have additives. So we have to understand that it's in the middle. That it's a decision with the discipleship, and it's what has been accomplished with what, without the additives. To focus on the very person of Christ. That Christ has accomplished it. When he said, it is finished, it was done. That's why we don't have Christ on the cross anymore. It is finished. That your sins, past, present, and future, were paid for in that moment in time. There was no event greater than what happened at the cross. Nothing in history can even come close to what happened in that moment on Calvary's tree. That he died for your sins, past, present, and future. That all of the wrath of God came upon him at that one moment in time to satisfy God's wrath and to give you peace and forgiveness, and life in him. And when he said, it is finished, it was done. Both now and forevermore, it was done. That it is sufficient. And that's why we always have to go back to the cross of Christ. We have to go back to the cross and say, it was sufficient. And when you encounter Jehovah's Witnesses, or Mormons, or the United Pentecostal Church, or even any other faith, they're going to try to add to Add to or take away from the Bible and question, get you to question the sufficiency of Christ. That's what was going on in Paul's day. 
that there were people that were confused about the sufficiency of Christ. Now, we have a tendency in our day and age to want, to, to want lists. I mean, we get confused. We don't understand the sufficiency of Christ. It seems too easy. And so we want to add to it and have our list to show that we are righteous with God in order to get into heaven. We want to mark it off the list. Now, I've been talking to my, my uh, Shia Muslim friend, and we've been talking about the five pillars of Islam. And he, if he accomplishes all these, he'll be all good in the presence of Allah. And that the five pillars are this. They have to say, there is no God uh, but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. That's the first thing that you have to do when you're a Muslim. Second is what's known as the Salat, which is the ob- uh, obligatory prayer, praying five times a day facing Mecca. Then there is the Zakat, which is giving 2.5% of one's savings to the poor and needy. Wow, it's easier to be a Muslim than it is a Christian. That's only 2.5%. That's easy. 2.5% to the poor and needy. Then there's number four, the Sawim, which is, means fasting and self-control during the holy month of Ramadan, where no one is allowed to eat during daylight hours. By the way, it's actually been proven that during Ramadan, Muslims eat more during that month than any other time. Because they don't get to, they fast during daylight hours, and at night they gorge themselves. So everybody talks about this holy fast, but yet they're gorging themselves at night. So, not allowed to eat during daylight hours, um, unless there's some physical thing keeping you from doing it. And then the last pillar is the Hajj, which is pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in one's lifetime. And if you, for some reason, can't do any of those things, or you don't do it, you're not a great Muslim, but if you die in an act of holy jihad, you get to go to the presence of Almighty God. So in other words, you just get to leapfrog everybody else and get in. These are the lists that you can go through to be all right with uh, God. And even then, you're not okay. You, You may not be okay. See, you see in the Scripture something totally different. It's not going through and marking off a list of do's and don'ts. It's about giving God your heart and trusting in what Christ has already done and living your life in the light of that fact. So we see that they were confused about the sufficiency of Christ and they lacked confidence in their faith. They lacked confidence in their faith. Now let me ask you a question. How confident are you of what you believe? How confident are you? What do you base that on? Is it what the priest said? Is it what the pastor said? What's it based on? Is it based on the Word of God? If you're challenged, how do you respond? Are you, are you afraid to answer them because you're afraid you may not know all the answers? Let me tell you, we're never going to know all the answers. But that's part of also growing when we step out in faith. And we're, we do have a challenge. We're sharing with them. People have their questions and, and, and reservations. And, you know, that's an opportunity for your faith to get deeper. It's a great opportunity. I find that my faith grows when I am challenged. Because I get to find out how true it really is. And today we find that in all of our day and age. We have, we have militant atheists questioning and uh, labeling and saying all of these horrendous things t- to us. And that caused people to go, well, is it really true? You know, it's interesting. Richard Dawkins, who's probably one of the most famous atheists in the world now, he's a professor in England. He has, uh, he's, he's very much of a militant atheist. And uh, they were interviewing him at one time, and they were t- he, was, he was talking about how, in his mind, how ridiculous it was the Christian understanding of beginning or origins how God can make the heavens and the earth in, in six days. And, and he was laughing at it. 
And some people would be so intimidated going, oh, here's this very smart man questioning us. Oh, woe is me. We must be foolish. Until people asked him the question, well, what do you believe? How the earth started and how, the, how everything began. He goes, well, life began on the back of crystals. What? Or it could have been aliens putting it in. Okay, wait, what? <laughs> you got a PhD from where? You think I'm crazy? Wow. See, people can criticize, but the reality is Christianity has endured for centuries. And the wisest sages of this age have all proven to be fools over time. God proves himself true, though every man is proven a liar. God will prove himself true, and he always has, and he always will. It doesn't matter what philosopher it is, what celebrity, or what politician. I mean, I was even reading, <laughs> reading yesterday about some of some very famous dictators in our time, especially during communist Russia with Lenin and Stalin, and how they sought to eliminate Christianity in their countries. And atheism became the official religion. And what happened? Eventually it all collapsed. And you see the church very much alive. What God is doing. See, you can't keep God out. God will accomplish his purposes. And we can be confident in the word of God and what it says. And when we have these questions, we shouldn't be threatened. We should be more confident because God will prove himself true. We may not know the answer, but we come back and we can talk and pray and research. And I'll tell you, the older that I've, I've, I've gotten, the more confident I've become in what it is, what it is that I believe about Christ. But they lacked confidence in their faith. They also had been duped by counterfeit spirituality. Duped by counterfeit spirituality. They had people telling them that you need to observe Sabbaths. You need to fast. You are not to drink. You are not to touch. You are not to do this. And, and honestly, we can look at that and go, oh, they must be right because I'm not, I don't have that type of zeal. See, when I first became a Christian, I got in contact with a group called uh, the United Pentecostal Church. A good friend of mine had grown up in the church. She was a United UPC pastor's daughter. And so she invited me to go to church. And I went to the church, and I'd never seen a church like that before. Because everybody was shouting. And my church, um, the only time you shouted is when the the hearing aids of the, the people sitting beside you went off. And you had to say, Ethel, turn it down! Okay, that was a church I grew up in. uh, Where half the the people had hearing aids and and, uh, overalls. It was a small country church. Um, And and people were very quiet, and they were simple people, and that was fine. But I went to this church, people are shouting, they're dancing, they're calling out in the service, and praising God. And and, and as a young Christian, I'm thinking, something's wrong with my church. The Spirit of God must not be there, and God must be in this church. And so I started interacting with them. And, they, and the further, the more that I interact with them, they tell me that I can't wear shorts, that I can't listen to this type of music, that I can't interact with that person. And I'm looking at them going, wait a minute, why are you adding to the gospel? It took me a while to figure that out. But I was being duped because it was a counterfeit spirituality. They looked godly on the outside, but the reality was is that Christ didn't have their heart. And they were, they were being legalistic and relying on their own righteousness rather than on Christ's. See, we can be duped by that. And that's why we have to go back to the Word of God. And what does the Word of God say? So we are not 
duped by counterfeit Christianity. Now, next we can see that they had separated their beliefs from their conduct. Separated their beliefs from their conduct. I want you to look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 through 11 with me. Paul's writing and says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you may have, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is, no, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So he's saying, put to death what is there for, meaning that you are still continuing in your sin, and your, your faith, your conduct is not rep- representative of your confession. As we've shared before, there's a big difference between profession and possession. That you can make a profession, but your life has to show that you are a God's possession, meaning that your conduct needs to be shown according to your confession. That if you are truly saved, that your life will represent that fact. But here they'd separated it, and Paul's telling him, no, you can't do that. Put it to death. You can't go on continuing to live in it, finding excuses for it. We see this all the time in our day. There are several groups and churches saying that God is okay with your, your, your sin. God is okay with your divorce. God is okay with your being drunk, doing drugs, smoking pot. God is okay with you sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. God is okay with you living together. God is okay with you doing this or doing that. And we come up with all of these excuses. But God calls us and says, no, put it to death. I came to give my son to put away sin. Not that you can continue living in it. That we are to put it away. To say that we can continue in it is to say that the cross meant nothing. See, the cross was God's judgment on sin. To show he was putting away sin by giving his son to die on our behalf. See, the Colossians were confused. They lacked confidence. They'd separated their conduct from their confession. But they also needed clarification about their role in the world. They needed clarification about their role in the world. Let's look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 through 25. And he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. See, they needed direction on basic human relationships, husband and wife relationships, relationships between the parents and the children, uh, relationships in the workplace. See, the gospel is transformative. 
And we are not to withdraw from society, but live within it. See, Satan is alive and well today. And he is trying to confuse people about the most basic of human relationships. He's attacking the family, causing people to have to choose between family and career, between fun and responsibility, and even who they are as men or women, saying it's just a matter of biology. It's not just a matter of biology. It's about the intrinsic nature of essence and who we are. Who does God want us to be? He wants us to be the best Christ followers we can be. And that means in the home, in school, in the workplace. It means not going out and uh, partying or focusing on your career so much you neglect your children. It means living as stewards of all that God has entrusted to us and teaching our children the way to follow Christ. I find that when the most basic of human relationships are questioned, everything else is thrown into turmoil. We have to go back to the foundation of who Christ is, understand that we are made in his image, and although the image is marred, we are to live that image out as we learn to submit and surrender to Christ. So as we study Colossians in the next few months, we have to understand the challenge before us. The challenge before us. We have to, a challenge to see Christ's preeminence. means first place above all things. His preeminence in the world. Now, this isn't through legislation. This is through evangelization. Not through legislation, but evangelization. Meaning that we want to see other people come to the saving knowledge of Christ. We want to see His preeminence throughout the entire world. And the only way that that happens is when the gospel is proclaimed and people surrender to Christ and to His supremacy in all things. Secondly, we are challenged to see His preeminence in our worship. We want to see Jesus for who He is, not for who we want Him to be. But we want to see Him in His true estate, high and lifted up, the Lord of glory, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prophet, Priest, and King, the King of our lives, King Jesus. And we want to give back to Him what is already His. And worship means giving all that we have. Part of that goes back to what we have talked about earlier, generosity. Generosity. Not just that, but that's a part of our worship. We want to see Jesus for who He is, not for who we want Him to be. We want to lift our hearts to Him in our worship. And as we have seen, our worship is the most precious and valuable thing that we can offer to God. It is the essence of who we are. And God wants our worship because it is in worshiping Him that He communicates His presence to us. Lastly, we need to seek His preeminence in our walk, in our daily walk with Jesus. See, Christ must be Lord of our lives. There is only following Christ or not. There's not an in-between. There is no spiritual fire insurance policy. Following Christ is an all-or-nothing pursuit. We want to see His preeminence first place, the infinite value we have upon Him in our workplaces, in our homes, in our schools, in our finances, in our marriages, in our hobbies, in our parenting, and all of our pursuits. There can be no nurturing of hidden sin, 
or living one way on Sunday and then another way the six other days. We must see him in our walk. We must really truly give him our utmost for his very highest. So as we go into this book, as we delve into it, I would heavily encourage you to be engaged in a small group and to hold on, to really persevere, to study this book and these principles and truths that we're going to be looking at and continually ask the Lord, what is he saying to you? How can we apply this to our lives? And continually ask ourselves the question over the next several months, are we truly giving Jesus our utmost? Are we giving him the supreme part of our life? The prime? Or are we giving him the scraps? We are to give our utmost for us highest. And as we look at Colossians, we'll learn how to do that in the next several weeks and months for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for entertaining very poor and small thoughts of you. Forgive us for delighting in our hobbies more than in your holiness. Forgive us for being bored at ourselves. Because, Lord, if we're bored, then we haven't truly yet understood who you are. Help us to grow in our knowledge of you and understanding your kingship, that you are the king of kings. Help us to boast only in the cross of Christ. Help us to go back and see and begin to understand the mystery of who Christ truly is. Lord, may we see you high and lifted up. May we grow in the knowledge of you. And Lord, for those who are in our midst that are struggling, that are going through a hard time, I pray you might encourage them that they might meditate upon you again to know that you were the God who is near. For those who are hurt, for those who are suffering, for those who are going through a very difficult relationship or circumstance in their life, I pray that you show yourself to be sufficient, that your power is made perfect in their weakness. Lord, may we see your supremacy in all things. May we see your preeminence, and may we delight in that truth, and may we find rest and peace in that fact no matter what it is that we're going through. Lord, whether it's a health report, whether it's a relational conflict, whether it's uh, something else going on in our lives, maybe it's a financial problem, maybe it's a, a problem with a coworker or in our family, Lord, please, may we rest in the knowledge of who you are, that your name might receive great glory through our lives, and that we might further delight in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.